0: and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. G'day, welcome to the Low Rates, High Returns podcast with me, Pete Wardgen. I'm here, as always, with Stephen Moriarty. G'day, Steve. How's things? Good, mate. Good, mate. How are you? I'm very well, still uh, over in Europe at the time of speaking, although hopefully some light at the end of the tunnel. So we're very excited this week to have a very special guest, Mr. Gareth Brown from Forager Funds. Gareth, welcome.
1: Hi Pete, hi Steve, hi everyone.
0: Gareth, why don't you, um, for people who may not be familiar, just give us a little bit of uh, your background, where you're from, your sort of education, and, and then we can come on to how you got involved in the investment world.
1: I'm a co-portfolio manager at the Forager International Shares Fund. So we're a, um, an unlisted fund that invests outside of Australia and helps our clients to get uh, international exposure. I've been the one of the portfolio managers there for a bit over a year. Before that, I've been a senior analyst for seven or eight years. And before that, I, w- I did a decade working at the Intelligent Investor newsletter, the Stock Market Newsletter, and then before that I was at various jobs at Commonwealth Bank on the trading floor and in risk management and a few other areas when I was a when I was a young kid.
0: So we get a lot of um people uh, younger people listening to these podcasts and I always get emails from people who are just really bored in their careers they've kind of fallen into the type of career that they're doing which is to some degree what my experience was as well as a chartered accountant. If somebody actually wanted to get into the roles of stock picking or funds management or investment. It sounds like a pretty cool career. Is there any advice you would give to young people who are thinking, well, that sounds like a really interesting and cool line of work to get into? How would you go about getting the experience to actually get into a role like that?
1: I think the path is quite a bit different to what I had in front of me a couple of decades ago, which you know, I started working on the trading floor at the bank when I hadn't even had a degree yet, that's not possible anymore. I was working on my degree part-time. I got into investing sort of around the age of 18, found value investing a year or two later. And you know, by the time that I moved over to the newsletter business, I'd been, you know, investing six or seven years and I earned my stripes that way. It's, it's, I think it's a fairly hard path to tread nowadays if people want to see CFAs, they want to see degrees. One thing I would say is that people love to see practical experience. It's not, you know, there is a lot of theory and there's a lot of accreditations to go through. But I think you also need to start as young as you can managing your own money, start making your own mistakes, start learning from your own mistakes, uh, and then have something to point out to people as as you start looking for jobs. That I like this. I like this stock now. I made a mistake here. I had a great investment on this stock, and um, just build a body of work. I think that's an essential part of it.
0: Yeah, because I guess uh, probably more so than most careers, you've got the, the difference between the theory and the practice is, well, it's almost everything for investors, isn't it? You can you can be a very good investor on paper or in theory, but it's um, when you're actually in the cut and thrust of markets that you really have to earn your stripes. So I'll, I'm going to flick over to Steve now because Steve's got some questions, particularly on um, your investment style and how you would describe the type of fund that you run. So, Steve, I'll flick over to you.
2: Jeez, thanks, Pete. Yeah, Garrett, what Pete and I usually do is try to help educate investors at the, the beginning and sort of intermediate stage and hopefully some experienced ones. With our eight principles, which of course you've probably read about in our world class famous book, available at all airports <laughs> um, <laughs> in the two dollar bin. Um, well, the airports so, are currently
1: shut, aren't they? Yeah,
2: that's why. <laughs> that's why our sales have dropped. That's, yeah, but you know they're gonna they're gonna pick back up. We've lobbied the prime minister on it. But um, in all seriousness, one of our principles we talk about is people having a systematic approach. Would it be fair to say, first of all, you guys are value guys? I think you're known as value investors. But secondly, how you actually pick stocks? Like, you know, some people go low PE or, you know, do you have a filter or anything like that? Or is it just a general, you read annual reports and pick it from there?
1: Maybe the first place to start here is that I think the typical investor doesn't have to replicate what we do to be smart. I hate starting with a Buffett quote because everyone else does it, but (laughs) Buffett said something along the lines once, as soon as dumb money recognizes it's dumb money, it ceases to be dumb money. And that's, you know, we live in a world where you can index, you can keep your costs low. You can avoid making mistakes that in past generations, people just went out and built portfolios and and started making mistakes that way. You don't need to do it that way. Although we've sort of gotten a bit back to that in the world of Robinhood and, and low cost trading. You don't need to do what we do. Um, I'll talk from the fund perspective first, and then you can ask about my history if you wish. But sure. we have an unconstrained investment mandate. So we have the freedom to invest in all stocks, regardless of market capitalization, regardless of sector, regardless of geography. Uh, we have an approach that puts valuation first. Now, you mentioned the word value investor, something we've become You know, we are value investors, don't get me wrong, but it's a term that we've become increasingly uncomfortable with as it means it just sort of gets you pigeonholed in the low price, the book bucket or the low PE or high dividend or whatever it is. We always put valuation first, but we will not be restrained that way. We will look for value the way we find it. Uh, And we have an ability to run a concentrated portfolio of best ideas. So we, we try to concentrate the portfolio, but we are acutely aware that there are costs and benefits to that. So we want to be acutely aware to the, to the costs of being too focused on any one size company, one sector, one geography, etc. So that's sort of the way we run the fund, maximum flexibility.
2: How do you find an idea, Gareth? Uh, like me, you just sort of scan global markets and go, oh, look, you know, there's a cheap company in Thailand or Russia or something. Is there any methodology behind it where you say we'll stay in developed markets or... You know emerging markets and within that do you say like how do you say oh this is you know I'm gonna look at yeah. this further yeah
1: I understand the question we try to have as few constraints as possible we are typically developed market and we try to stick to where we feel we have an edge so that's typically US Europe um we have a little bit in Asia but we've you know I try it was been maybe a little bit less clear in that part of the world I'll talk about here the idea generation process because I think if we have a sustainable edge in investing—it comes from the way we approach the idea generation process. We have a team on our international fund of three and a half people. We're not a big team, you know. And you go up against, you know, the Platinum's and the Magellans of, Magellan's of the world, and that's that's our competition in Sydney alone. We've got the whole world of competition against us. We need to really focus on where we can have an edge. So it's all about mentality here. We we have to be looking for the right kind of idea. And we have to be looking in the right place. And so the way we do that is we have a laser focus on why a stock might be cheap. Probably the best thing to discuss here is, is the wisdom of crowds. So stock market is uh, you know an agglomeration of different thoughts on valuation from buyers and sellers. And we know from literature, there is an inherent wisdom to crowd guesses. It tends to be more accurate than an individual. I get paid to predict the future in a way. And I'm telling you that 95 plus percent of the time, the market is going to understand a situation better than I do. That's, a, that's quite a difficult thing to swallow when when you're paid to predict the future, but 95% of the time, I'm not going to do a very good job of it. And our focus is to find that, that needle in a haystack, that situation where we are very confident that the market has this wrong. So we need aggressive selling, And we need other buyers to not turn up at that bidding process that is the markets that we know.
2: So in that, just taking that a step up, do you have a macro, you know, like Pete and I the last 12 months or 12 months ago talked about oil, right, and said to people, you know, listen, oil is really cheap. You should get in on oil. Do you you take it from there or do you start at, oh, BP looks cheap and work up, you know, bottom up, top down?
1: We do a little bit of top down as a... Uh, just to make sure we're not missing anything, but we're more bottom up. So we will look at over the course of a year, the three and a half of us will look at thousands of investment ideas. And we will look at them with this five minute, 10 minute filter saying, is there something here? The market could miss that I could understand. If not, we move on. And then we go through that 99 or, you know, or several hundred stocks to find that one thing that we we might understand better. And then all our work is around then either confirming that thesis or or disconfirming it. So, you know, nearly all of our ideas, we we feel that um, unique hedge. We, you know, occasionally use some other things to hedge our risk and, and whatnot, but, you know, we're, we're really looking for that individual insight that the rest of the market might miss.
0: I'll just jump in with a, just a, a question or an insight here, Gareth. You mentioned just earlier on there that you've kind of moved away from the tag of... Value investing. Although it sounds from what you're you're saying, you're still practicing a value approach, but is it um the case that the people t- tend to sort of see value investing as um traditional view? So you might be looking at say 10 years of earnings and a proven track record. If I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying is you you're actually just looking for a price discrepancy, and it doesn't matter. Yeah. Because uh, I, I remember there's, um, this is a, a little while ago, but um, you guys were talking about an investment in Uber, which kind of lit up the switchboards. And people were saying, well, how can a value investing yeah. fund be looking at Uber? But I suppose the the logic would go something along the lines of, well, look at Facebook. It's in the news at the moment. Facebook, that was famously down yesterday at the time of recording but if you went back to 2013, I remember the stock price kind of ripping from 30 to 40 dollars. But a traditional value investor might not have got in at that point because there wasn't a long proven track record of earnings. But even with all of the current problems, I guess the price has gone from 380 to 320. So the traditional. View or explanation of what value investing is might just slightly mislead people, I guess, in terms of what it is you're actually doing. Yeah, I
1: think the the problem is not us; it's them. Uh, We think using the term value investor might give the wrong impression of what we actually do, but we are always valuation driven. And and you know, Facebook's a great example. I, I think I looked at that very closely over the Cambridge Analytica scandal of a few years ago, and you know, we didn't buy it, but we looked closely. You know Uber as well, those sort of big companies that it's not very often that we find an edge in, in that bigger stuff. So it's not usually the focus, but but we do occasionally. I mean, if you go back to, to around 2012, there was a lot of big, cheap, the biggest companies in the world were way too cheap and you could have shot a dart at any of them and you would have done really, really, really well. It's not a normal thing that that's where the misconceptions are in the market.
0: Yeah, that, that makes sense. I so I've got a, a question from Leftfield Boy because uh, this is uh, something I heard you discuss online once. This is going back to the career question. So I know uh, when I was in my professional career, whenever I had a job interview, I'd always have these sort of set answers that I would just reel off for any question. And particularly when people asked about weaknesses, you'd have this kind of faux modesty and say something like, oh, you know, I find it really difficult to delegate because I, I just care too much, you know, or, you know, when people ask about what's your biggest weakness, oh, I tend to work too hard, you know, just this kind of sort of bullshit faux modesty. But I, I've heard you discuss um, when people are discussing careers in investing, and people ask that question, the obvious question, what's your biggest mistake? And people have a sort of the, the faux modest answer is something like, I bought Amazon at $51, but I probably should have bought more. Yeah, yeah. You know, they kind of feel well to, to uh, break your Warren Buffett rule. There is a
1: omission, isn't it? Like Instead it's of it's the gutless way out of it, isn't it? Yeah.
0: yeah so to turn that question around then, uh, I mean, if you've ever listened to any of our stuff, we've uh, covered many of my biggest uh, mistakes from casinos and to mining stocks. But if, yeah. if you were to answer that question for yourself, what, what has been your biggest investment mistake?
1: I've got plenty of them. I mean, in my early days, I I copied Buffett. I was just buying reinsurance companies and losing money. And then later on, I bought oil stocks and lost money. And, you know, I think at best, if we can get like a 70% strike rate over time, uh, we're going to do all right. But that means 30% of the time we're wrong. And we've got to work really hard to make sure that we don't lose too much when we lose. And we gain a lot when when we've picked a winner we get this stuff wrong all the time and it, it's the nature of the game.
0: I think that, I guess that was a bit of an unfair question, I guess, to focus on a, on mistakes, but I guess to, to put on the other side of that question, and I think um, whenever I do these interviews, I try to come away with things that I can learn for myself. And I heard you talk about once one of your personal investments. I think ARB, there was like a 20 bagger or something. My question is, when I look back at the the errors of omission versus errors of commission, you know, I've done all the stupid things that young men did, like, you know, punting on resources, stocks and uh, effectively gambling. But I actually look back and some of my biggest regrets are where I've picked some brilliant stocks. You know, some of the early sort of internet style stocks in travel and other sectors, And then I've maybe doubled my money. And then I look back and think, why the hell did I sell that? You know, because you see the share price today. So I guess my question is, do you have a process for when you hold an investment that is already performed like the one I mentioned, ARB? If something has done that well for you, do you get loyal to the stock? Or do you have a process which uh, helps you to to determine whether to trim or sell some or whether to just hold on to it for the long term and let it keep compounding?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm probably a more loyal guy than most, and maybe to a fault. It's not the way we run the portfolio. We have stocks in here that we've held for three or four years. We've got nothing that we've invested in when we started the fund in 2013 and kept since. You know, you have an obligation to keep the portfolio cheap, but we always go in with an eye to the long term. So it's really hard to explain here, but you, you, you buy a stock, I'm taking a 10-year view. But if it absolutely rockets over the first year of ownership, and you can find other things here, then it sort of becomes an obligation of you to move on, and that's the that's sort of the interesting thing about it. Certainly in our funds process, is that we're trying to drive that conveyor belt of new ideas really, really quickly. So the idea is not buy something and hold for hold till it hits fair value, and we make our let's say fifteen percent per annum and run. The idea is to is to push it out of the portfolio because we found something better or we found something cheaper. And it's just, uh, I've got a few stocks that I've held for a long time. It's just not the way we we really run the fund. We're relatively loyal, but, you know, portfolio turnover is higher than you might expect.
2: When you look at a company, Gareth, and, and you decide to go in, a couple of questions. One is, do you look for a catalyst? A lot of, sorry to get back to, you know, value investors, but some guys look for a catalyst to say, well, it's going to, re-rate because, you know, oil is going to double yeah. or, you know, stuff like that. And secondly, in your asset allocation, how do you determine, you know, this is 5% of the portfolio or this is 10 or this is 3 that sort of idea?
1: Yeah. I mean, catalysts, it's a tough one. It, you know, you, you need to say, here's why I think the stock's cheap and here's why I think that's going to be rectified. It, it right. takes a fair bit of, let's say, part to to think that you're going to be getting that sort of stuff right now, we are very careful about illiquid situations and situations where the business is, isn't growing. So a, a business that is growing and, and let's say you've set your thesis and that's correct and the business does grow, it grows out of a lot of these potential problems. So yep. you know, I think if you're looking at um, takeover arbitrage, if you're looking at turnarounds, um, yeah, cyclicals at certain times, I think you do need to think about catalysts, yep. but to the extent you're finding a nice business that's growing, that's at a reasonable valuation, it's something I don't I don't personally spend a lot of time on. My my co PM does spend a lot more time on that, so we we probably have different approaches, and there's a bit of yin and yang there. Um, but yeah, it's not it's not really high on my agenda there in, in terms of catalysts
2: and asset allocation. If you find yeah. something, how do you go? Oh, you know, ten percent or two percent.
1: Yeah, I mean 10% at cost is is a pretty big swing for us, safety of the business, so asymmetric payoff, so low yep. downside, high upside. I'm really confident I'm not going to lose money is a big part of the big positions.
2: Right. And like, do you say, listen, 30 positions, let's not go anywhere over that or?
1: Now, PDS says uh, typically less than 40 positions.
2: Right. Okay.
1: There's sort of certain caveats around there. So some things we do buy with a basket approach. So you might end up owning five different things that represent one uh, one position. We, we don't have an obligation like that. Again, we, we want to be as unconstrained as possible. And, and we want to be concentrated when the payoffs are there. And we don't want to be concentrated when it's just risk and there's no payoff from it.
2: Yeah. What do you mean, Gareth, when you say five positions cover one?
1: You're- Let's say you wanted to take a view on, you know, an inflation hedge and you wanted a commodity commodity basket. Right. You, you I- might come to that with the opinion that I don't actually bring anything on the stock selecting side, so I'm going to diversify a bit but it's really about hedging the oil price or something right, like that. We, okay. we don't spend a lot of time on that sort of stuff. We also, you know, in the early days, we bought a, a basket of really cheap cashback stocks in Japan. So they were just, you know, really cheap versus the amount of cash they had on their balance sheets. But yeah. you have Japanese management and Japanese capital allocation, diversification matters. So we would rather own a portfolio there than, than an individual stock.
2: Right. Okay. Oh, that's interesting.
1: Pete?
0: Yeah, so I had a question. So the the name forager almost gives you this uh, visual of um, you know some guys out there. You're looking for the the stones that other people are looking at, and um, I suppose this is a question about the approach as much as anything else. So at the time of speaking, I've been stuck over in Europe and. Traveling around and Gareth, I know you
2: have. Your <laughs> oh, I love that. I've been stuck <laughs> over in Europe. Oh, here I am in Crete on the beach. Oh, I'm stuck <laughs> here again. You a- he
0: need to Instagram. open a Patreon account
2: and send, send
1: donations. <laughs>
2: oh, Jesus, give me a break. <laughs> That's actually not
0: the I should become a travel blogger. It's about as useful as I've been over the last few months. So, um, I, I, I suppose my question is um, for somebody who invests in international shares. So, going back to Uncle Warren, he would say, Well, I'm based in Omaha and that helps. I'm I'm removed from the noise of Wall Street and therefore he sees that as an advantage but do you find that um, having an interest in travel or Europe or you know visiting companies being overseas does that actually help with finding perspective and opportunities or do you think you can do most of the research from behind the desk?
1: I think you can do a lot of it from behind the desk and and the, the pandemic's actually been quite useful for that a lot of the you know, conferences and 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 business meetings that we might have had to have done in person and now opened up for us, albeit we're up at all hours of the night doing those meetings. But broadly, my wife's been happy to not have me overseas sort of a month to six weeks a year. But I think you need to be an interested person in this job, you know, the, the kind of guys that you are where you're trying to work out how the world fits together and nothing beats spending time in different markets uh, and seeing different things and having that filter just trying to understand how the world fits together and I think travel is is ultimately an essential part of it uh, which is is fine by me because uh, I enjoy at least some of it
2: it's probably important too if you're a you know like you're doing a a global portfolio it'd be a bit unusual to sort of say no I've never been anywhere but you know please trust me with your money it's like uh hang on
1: yeah we've got some um... cool stories around that I mean we had we invested in a small Italian company in 2013. We were the first fund managers to ever visit that company's head office. It's what? two hours by train from Milan. They never had a local investor come and visit them. So we went on tour. We got the grand tour uh, and learned a lot about this interesting little business and and ultimately invested and, and made really good money out of it. And, so, you know, there's sort yeah. of things like that you can do.
2: So, Gareth, what's that? Because I I remember one of my thesis was probably around the same time you guys were saying um, was tattoo removal was going to become a really big business because there'd be, you know, people who'd say, oh, my God, I made a mistake. And I remember you guys talked about what you were saying, that that Italian company that had laser, I think it was. You know, so that's interesting that, you know, you go, so this company, did tattoos, not the removal.
1: No, 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 no. BMC made speakers and pro audio stuff. So when you go to a concert, the stuff that the foo fighters have got jamming right, and okay. uh, noise in here, they make a lot of the internal workings, the, the low frequency drivers and the high frequency drivers. So, like just a really dominant, like quite a huge market share globally for this little business based in Florence. You know, we've got a lot of stories like that. If we're always talking about that this aha moment where you look at a stock and go. I think I understand what the market might have wrong here. And a lot of them do tend to happen to us when we're overseas. We're in a broker meeting, we're having a discussion around something or we're at an investor-led conference uh, and someone says something, you're like, okay, I I can see where the market could get this wrong, so I'll go and do more work on that.
2: Like, do you get those aha moments from meeting with management where, like, I assume you're sort of thinking, saying to the manager, listen, you know, your stock we think is worth two bucks and it's at a dollar. Tell us where the market's not seeing the value.
1: And Usually the management and meetings, the the thing that comes after the aha moment, it's not necessarily...
2: Oh, right, okay.
1: We own a company called Blanco, um, and that was a business we came across via a broker meeting. We went to London. We had these brokers bring out their analysts and start talking to us about all their different favourite stocks. And we'd been listening for sort of two hours. We had another meeting across town, and... None of it was our sort of stuff. Like it was not. It was all straight down the middle kind of stuff. And and Steve, our CIO, just said to the broker, "Have you got anything else? Have you got anything hairy?" And he said, "Look, we've got this little company called Blanco. I really like the business, but look, the CEO's just been fired. Looks like there's been some impropriety there. They've been reporting revenue from a business from a contract client contract that didn't actually wasn't actually signed. It wasn't." never actually materialized. The stock's <laughs> down 80%. We had deceased coverage, and but I, I actually think they've got a real business there. Like that was, for us, that was a really, okay, this is a business worth doing some work on. Right. I can get into the nuts and bolts of the business, but it's a software business, dominant global market share in this weird little niche. And we did all the work over the next few weeks while we we're on the road. We we kept it going when we we're in Norway and then we we're in you know, Germany. And we just kept Steve and I kept doing the work on this. It all started to stack up. We started buying, and then we realized that we were we were buying 100 percent of the turnover on, on several days in the market. So right. everyone else was trying to sell. We were the only buyer. Now that does not guarantee we're right, but it means if we are right, we're going to get a a really nice payoff. And ultimately the market just got that one wrong. Like they, they, you know, we did a lot of due diligence to work out that it was only in one region where this this contract misreporting had happened. The other areas were going strong, that the product was real, the customers were happy. It's up five times or six times off, off the lows we were buying three or four years ago, right? You know, that's our kind of business. And, and you know, as I said, it doesn't typically come from a CEO talking to you about it. That's more part of the the fact-checking of your thesis.
0: Yeah, it sounds no, like a, a lot of what you guys do is is more from the bottom up because a lot of what yeah, Stephen and enough. I talk about on the podcast is almost starting from another perspective, almost looking at things like um, CAPE ratios for a country or a sector and then working down from there. So, But I think it, in some cases it could it, could end up leading you to a similar conclusion, I suppose. Mm. Uh, I think that's right. I mean,
1: you, you you would you would be looking in the UK in 2017 and 18, and and even now, it's it's one of those cheaper markets, having gone through Brexit, having gone through the worst yeah. of the pandemic.
0: Yeah, well, you've you preempted my question then, because uh, obviously, as, as um, you would have picked up, I'm currently over in England, and um, Stephen and I have been talking for a few years. Of the developed markets, the UK has probably looks like one of the best value markets from a CAPE ratio perspective. And you mentioned that the sort of intangible element there, and th- these are things that are very hard to measure in any kind of PMI index or anything like that. But I could see when things like uh the Reading Festival tickets went on sale, it was like, bang, 100,000 tickets sold out. Uh, you know, Spurs yeah. started playing Long the football hedonisms. again. You know, 60,000 of the football sold out in, you know, minutes. You know, and, uh, I guess there's, and I've, I've seen you talk about the sort of the hedonism trade of uh, reopening. So that's maybe the intangible element. But a lot of what we do really, as uh, Stephen mentioned right back at the beginning, it's quite systematic. And really just looking at the Cape ratio for the UK, Probably about half of what it's been in the US, and relatively yeah. speaking, good value. And then you can move on. And, and to- they've got
1: a big, like they got a big war- global fake facing um, mm-hmm. sector over there as well. Mm-hmm. So you know it's a very global facing economy, and it's it's going to be thrust even more in that direction over the next few years, I think. So you sit there and say, okay, people are worried about the British economy, but a lot of it's sort of not really all that dependent on the British economy, is it?
2: Yeah, if you look at companies like British American Tobacco and those sort of things, you know, where the story's really good. And like you say, it's people go, oh, we talked about this. Sorry, I'll veer off now, but Pete and I talked about this with South Korea, you know, where a couple of years ago, South Korea was really cheap on a cap ratio yeah. basis. Telcos were really cheap. I don't know about others, but I bought South Korean Telecom and now it's up about 40 or 50%. But that's sort of the way we do it. We do it top. I do it top ways by saying, well, where's a cheap country? Give me a cheap sector, and now I'll go and look for a cheap company. And it sounds like you do sort of, as it's Pete said, certainly the reverse.
1: Part of our well, but it is also part of our process. So as I said, I go and look at thousands of companies a year. But you know, I will go and look at the UK because it's cheap. I, you know, I spend a lot of time looking at, you know, it's a it's a small market, but I spend a lot of time in Greece trying yep. to understand things back. Then, just in case something was was wrong, that like we we try to move towards towards panic, towards fear, towards mispricing, yeah, uh, and then do our you know bottom up work. And because you know, obviously, the cheaper the market is, the more likely it is you're going to find something where you you can develop a real edge. Just the the idea as well of of investing internationally. We run a, a fund that is it's unhedged the currency, or it's it's not hedged back into Australian dollars. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we think uh, international exposure gives and this is not a sales pitch for my fund there are many funds you can do you can get this with that the cliche is you know 98 percent of opportunities exist outside the country yeah. only two percent are in australia and i think you know this the cliche is kind of sells itself but what's really important is what that two percent represents in australia which is not a very well balanced economy for you to bet your entire life savings on. You know, we're very exposed to property, to banking, to mining and resources. So I think in many respects, coming from a smaller country like Australia, you do need to think about this more than you do if you lived in the US or even the UK, just because we have, a, I guess, a lopsided index here.
0: Yeah. yeah, I think actually probably one of the most common questions we get from people about investing overseas is on the currency. And it's like, well, do you do you look for a currency hedged investment do you, or do you accept that it will just wash out over time or do you take a, another approach? Um, well, I guess you've, you've kind of answered what you guys do.
1: We don't want to be constrained, so we, yeah. we preserve the right to. But what we do is really strong views on currency. So we want to give people exposure to foreign currencies rather than hedging it back to Aussie dollars but we hedge it to the what the market is. So we compare ourselves with, with an index and that index is a certain percent US, certain percent UK, UK pounds, a certain percent yen, et cetera. And we're aiming to try and get our currency bucket to look roughly like that index. So if we, if we were finding great stocks in the UK, for example, we might hedge some of that pound exposure out into some other currency just to keep the currency bucket roughly representative.
0: Yeah, that makes mm-hmm. sense. So I think um, you know a lot of people who tune in to, to our podcast they they're people who are taking control of their own money. But um, as you mentioned, um, a personal investment strategy, and this is obviously not personal advice because we've got a range of listeners. But for some people, that might involve um, you know exposure to property via their home, maybe some index funds, maybe some managed funds. You know, so I think uh, as you mentioned, one of the key risks that people need to, to cover off really is having much exposure to one strategy and I do sometimes see this where you know, people have got 100% of their investments in just the ASX and you know you could take your own view on whether that's risky but you've got to look at you know the range of possible outcomes and manage it uh, that way. So Steve I know you had a couple of questions just on mean reversion and market cycles so um I'll flick back over to you.
2: Yeah cheers Gareth we talk about the eight principles blah 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 and couple of them. One is we're believers in mean reversion, particularly at a macro level, you know, because of the CAPE ratio and stuff. Because a lot of people, I sort of go, oh, you know, I'm waiting for the market to decline and then I'll spend a lot more money then. Whereas a lot of people say, and I'm not arguing against it, but I suspect guys like you might say, well, we ignore the macro and if the company's cheap, we don't care if it gets or believe it's going to get cheaper. We're still happy to buy is that the way you guys operate?
1: We recognise there's ebbs and flows in markets and, and you can buy, you know, a really good stock idea and and lose because the market's moved against you. I mean, mean reversion is, is fact. It is strong in certain series like profit margin. It's less yep. obvious in, in, in other areas. But, you know, I've been reading Jeremy Grantham stuff for, I don't know, yep. 25 years and he talks about mean reversion all the time and yes. he's right at crucial moments. And he looks wrong a lot of the time. Yeah. And if you're yeah. prepared to pay that cost, then fine. My broad experience has been most retail investors can talk about waiting for a market dip, but when it comes, they really struggle to pull the button. And, and, trigger, and understanding yeah. understanding that, I mean, you know, we can talk about that from, from my own experience. And back in March 2020, we had a handful of investors add. We had a, you know, we had, we had, very disciplined investors the number of people that took their money out was very low so i'm very happy with behavior that that way they've, they've looked after themselves and us in the process but we didn't have a lot of ads and and that was sort of that was peak panic certainly in hindsight you yeah
2: know. we were the same in the sense we you know were the same in the sense of saying from my perspective that was where you know the cape ratio was at 33 in the us and it fell to 23 and it was a 30% drop. And people were like, oh, you know, you're missing out on all this stuff. And I'd said to them, well, hang on. First of all, the CAPE ratio's fallen to 23, which is still 30% above the long-term average. It's still saying I'm paying 2 bucks for something that's really a dollar. And the, the second part of that too, which is the thing that probably annoys me the most, is you hear a lot of guys, you know, after it rebounds 35%, sort of talk about, oh, you know, that's why you've got to ignore the dip because, you know, it's all bloody good. And my argument is too, like you were saying, how many of us or how many of them really said, right, now we're going to swing for the fences. I I Mm. find that, you know, most people don't do that. They go, oh, well, I just put my thousand bucks a month in my super. And, you know, I lost 30% of my 150 grand in super that I had there. But, oh, gee, I got, you know, I I spent five grand in March 2020 and, you know, now that's six and a half, but my 130 is still back at 100.
1: Yeah, I think I'd probably give that idea more credence than you are. Like, I think that for most people, it's not a bad strategy to just drip feed in and not try and time markets and recognise that things do tend to go up over time. It's it's the power of the mortgage, right? It's why, yeah. you know, half the country's relatively well off because they've had the discipline of a mortgage. You can apply that same concept to dollar cost averaging and I think yeah. it's probably the most powerful tool for most people. You know, most people don't want to be professionals. They shouldn't be yes. professional investors. Yeah. And the idea of taking the psychology out of it and just putting discipline over the top of it is probably a sensible Thing for most people it, it i mean i've you know we just don't get the checks at the bottom yeah we just don't seem to people don't seem to be able to do it and you platinum's released a lot of good stuff like this over the here. years here's our average returns and here's our dollar cost average returns even platinum smart investors have not gotten that right
2: right okay in terms of buying it the you know buying at the s- wrong time selling yeah, at the yeah. wrong time okay oh that's interesting because i've i've you know everybody probably knows on the podcast but I I hold a lot of cash, you know, probably 70%. And I've I've even flogged off a bit today too. And it never bothers me because I've always seen that it's much easier to make money when the market's crashed. You know, it's a bit like, well, this is shooting fish in a barrel. You can buy any piece of shit and it'll make money. Whereas you know, like in 2016 or whatever, when it's not cheap, you're sort of going, oh, well, you know, I can buy this company. But, you know, I've always thought it's easier for, and I'd say to people, I made most of my money in 'oh nine 11 financials, uh, Russia 2014 and Brexit, you know. Yeah, and 16. you clearly
1: had the discipline to make and those bets at that time, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and as and you I think say, that's right. I mean, some of the great investors have, have have been north of 50% cash at times. It's not, I'm definitely not poo-pooing the, the idea of it, I just don't think it's for most people.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. I would, I would absolutely agree with you there. Even a lot of people, I think, who like us are investors, and go, yeah, yeah, I'll be in there when that you know, I'll be yeah. in there when the market dives fifty percent. And then yeah. I remember I spoke to one guy in two thousand and nine who said, I'm going to wait till the ASX gets back to four thousand, and it was at three three or something. And I said to him, so you reckon it'll get to four? And he went, oh yeah. And I said, well, if you think it's going to get to four, why do not you buying it at three three? You know, so, but just weird stuff like that where people want that little bit of momentum.
0: Yeah, I think you've, uh, between you, you've preempted my final question there, then, which is I see a lot of blogs around the place, you know, they talk about investing. And it seems to be the mantra at the moment is A, you always buy, and B, you always buy and hold because you can't predict what the market's going to do. Yeah. Now, I guess um, uh, I've got a few gray hairs on the head, and I, I'm thinking that I hear that a hell of a lot more in a bull market. And I didn't hear many people, as Steve said, saying that around, say, March 2009. There weren't, there weren't many people talking about always buying and buying and holding. Uh, I, I suppose that really is my question. Uh, can the motivated individuals beat the market over time? And should people pick their own stocks or should they just leave it to the professionals and stand aside?
1: I think that the small investor can have some very large advantages over pre- professional investors like me. The number of stocks that I have to flick past because they even at our size they are just too small and there are things that I'd love to invest in personally but we have a rule against that, you know, I can't buy any stocks direct now since you know for the last 8 years. I think that smaller end of the market in particular if you wanted to make that your your okay. hunting ground there are certain advantages that certain types of individuals <laughs> can have. I think you have to put a lot of work into it. You have to prepare to make it basically your job. And we have to recognize that it's probably not for everyone as well.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Gareth. There's been some excellent insights there. We've kind of in a relatively short amount of time covered quite a big range of things, but there's a couple of interesting insights there. One is that you it know, can be okay to invest in companies before they're profitable, even as a value-style investor. I guess you'd be looking at things like whether the company has a, a good, strong moat. Obviously, I, I'm hearing you research widely, but also in depth and recognize the power of good management, uh, potentially the intangible elements of some businesses, but particularly their competitive position. And maybe there's some businesses that you give more Leeway to than others. So, thank you, Gareth. It's been a a fantastic interview. As always, with these things, I I can think of about 50 other things that we might talk about. But uh, if people wanted to find out a little bit more about Forager, can you just uh, give us a little plug and tell us where people can go for more?
1: Sure. Our website is foragerfunds.com. We produce monthly and quarterly reports, which is probably the best place to start understanding our approach to markets and whether that might be suitable to to a potential investor you can also find the pds the product disclosure statement on our website which is uh, an important read before anyone commits money to us we also have a blog you can access it all from the website i i'm I'm a prodigious twitter but but it's mostly just shit posts so
0: for your sense yeah so it's a very difficult if you stay away professionally That's probably the best advice we can give anybody. Stay off uh, social media and Twitter. So, uh, uh, thanks again, uh, Gareth, for joining. And um, I guess the way things are going, I could be stuck in Europe for a while. And it uh, looks like Queensland will be locked up for years to come. So, maybe we'll catch up for a lime and Soda in Sydney at some point soon.
1: Yeah, or a ski in Tyrol,
0: wherever, wherever it happens, man. Fantastic. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, thanks, Steve. All oh, good. Cheers,
2: Gareth. Cheers. See you guys.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book, Low Rates, High Returns. Just visit www.lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter, so do reach out and connect with us. And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers.